Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Well, welcome, listeners. Last time we were together, we talked about some end-of-life ethics and issues, and this time we are bringing it back to the beginning, and we are going to talk about the Incarnation and answer some questions there. So back in episodes six, seven, and eight, we discussed really in depth what it means to be human. So we're going to be using that language. If you're curious about that conversation, go ahead and go back and listen to those because we won't probably rehash that too much. But our big question is, why does it matter that Jesus was a person? Why does it matter that Jesus came as a real human baby. So gentlemen, would you kick us off by kind of answering that question from your perspective? Stan, please. Well, uh, first, let me make a distinction. Person is actually a genus. Mm. Uh, There's human persons. There are angelic persons. There are divine persons. So uh, more properly, why is it important Jesus came as a human person, having eternally been uh, a person in the triune Godhead? So Mm Um, so why is it important that Jesus came as a, a human person? Uh, I have written a little bit about this, and uh, there are seven, eight, nine different reasons. So a lot can be said. But uh, let me just start by saying that if we are going to follow the Lord's command to worship him in spirit and truth, we need to understand the truth of God coming to us in flesh, that actually we worship Jesus not as only this disembodied spiritual being that he was before he took on flesh, but actually was in every way fully human. And uh, all of that entails, that leads us, I think, to really worship him fully as the uh, the second person of the Trinity incarnate and celebrate Christmas in the most full and God-honoring way. Yeah, I think that's uh, very important. And, and And I would add just a couple of thoughts. I think Stan knows a lot more about this than I do. But for one thing, I think what it does is it it shows God's attitude toward the material world and toward bodies, Mm -hmm. that that matter isn't evil and the body isn't somehow evil like platonic dualism might hold, uh, because he would be then uh, uniting himself with something that's bad or, or evil. This affirms that uh, the body is a good thing, good enough for it to house the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. And so this affirms the, the value of the body. Now, there's a lot more in Scripture that talks about ways to bring your body into your spiritual life. And I don't know that we'll talk about that. But this is a beginning kind of, you might say, justification for that. Not treating the body as evil, but it's a good thing that needs to be brought under our our control. I think the second thing is this. It's very interesting, uh, Jordan, but when I came to Jesus in the uh, late 60s, during the, during the uh, 60s revolution and the Jesus revolution, it was widely held, and I held this, that Jesus' miracles verified his deity. But that's uh, New Testament scholars have long abandoned that, and, and they don't believe that any longer. 
there were a number of things that verified his deity. And if Jesus makes a statement that his works are of such a nature that they verify that he is the promised Messiah, then, then that's legitimate. But But the reason this is important is because what New Testament scholars have come to realize is that Jesus did not use his divine nature when he was on this earth. And instead, he did everything as a human being, in dependence on the Holy Spirit, as he sought to see where his Father was moving. And what that means is that we are invited to do the same sorts of things that Jesus did. Now, when Jesus says, greater things will you do because I go to the Father, if you take a look at the number of resurrections from the dead, the number of lame people that have been given their, their, their ability to walk, blind people whose sight has been returned, uh, that are happening all over the world today uh, in the tens and hundreds of thousands the body of Christ has done far more than Jesus did in his incarnate body while he was on this earth because of the, our numbers. <laughs> and we can take that seriously. This means a shift in philosophy of ministry uh, that we incorporate uh, laying hands on and praying for the sick and uh, uh, things of that sort as a part of what we do as as ministers, and we never promise people get healed. We won't talk about that, but we do promise to bless them and give God the chance, should he choose to use us, to bring about a healing of some kind. So that's another reason why I think it's important to realize Jesus was fully embodied, and so we can imitate him uh, in all he did. Yeah, and there's a lot of other implications that follow from him valuing the physical dimension of, of of our human embodiedness reality to take it on himself. It really does, as you said, lift up and value this material thing that we in Christian circles tend to have said is, is either irrelevant to our spiritual lives or it's harmful to our spiritual lives. And the incarnation just reminds us that, no, it's a good thing to be embodied and we can fully embrace that Amen. and Amen. actually um, it can help us in our spiritual growth. Uh, you alluded earlier to the practice of spiritual disciplines and the ways the body can help us in our growth and, uh, and maturity in Christ. And it also values what we do in the body. So it values our work. And another one of these ideas that has become, well, it's, had a long history, hasn't just become popular, but certainly is popular now, uh, is that what we do nine to five, unless we're in quote unquote Christian ministry, but for most people go to nine to five jobs and it's really not important stuff. It's just kind of what you have to do to survive, maybe make some money to give to missions or whatnot, but but it's not really important to the kingdom of God in and of itself. It just devalues our, our, our living and working in the body. And the incarnation reminds us also that no, uh, those things are all sacred. All we do in the body is sacred if it's done for the right motives to honor God. And so it just re it redeems a, a theology of work and vocation as well, I think. Well, and, and to underscore Stan's point, 
Jesus didn't live his life uh, in uh, some sort of a monastery or uh, in in a place where he was like a, 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 a scribe or Pharisee, where he spent all day studying. Um, he was a what you might call an independent contractor. He worked with stone and and with wood, and uh, he built things. So he would be an independent contractor in our in today's world. And that's manual labor, and he did that for for some thirty some years of his life. Uh, uh, now I'm sure he did other things during that time, but you get the point. He dignified <laughs> uh, blue collar work, if you want to call it that, uh, and working with his hands. Uh, now uh, there's a room for academics, and the body of Christ has room for so many different things. But but I'm just saying that it was kind of a genius move, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. For for Jesus to be born in a family where he took on that line of work for almost his entire life, because it just speaks volumes uh, uh, in terms of the importance of that kind of work, and also of uh, the humility uh, of the incarnation, where he didn't come with fanfare and and be waited on and spent his time living the high life, uh, but he got d- down and dirty. Uh, in the tough day and day warp and woof of everyday jobs, and that's a, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a big stumbling block too for, for example, Islam, that would have a really hard time with a god in humility in such a way. They find it actually very offensive, and to to hear these stories of Christ being a carpenter, you know, how we translate carpenter and uh, stonemason. It's, we take for granted that we have this view when people at that time would just have no, no frame of reference for a God who would want to come on purpose, not because they got Mm -hmm. banished, but Mm -hmm. on purpose to come to earth and do it in the way that Christ did. It just didn't make sense. So that's where we get the idea of Gnosticism and this big divide. Uh, Stan, can you give us kind of an idea of what Gnosticism is? Sure, I'll touch on it, JP. I know you can say a lot more about this than I can, but it has its roots in, as JP actually mentioned earlier, this idea from Plato that that which is good is spiritual and matter is inherently evil. And so the idea that follows from it, therefore, in terms of Jesus could not have been actually physical, could not actually be incarnate, had to be uh, only a spiritual being, appeared to be a physical being also, but really wasn't. Actually, First John starts with a response to this idea, talking about uh, him who we have not only seen, but touched. And, uh, and 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 seen eat food and all of these very physical things as a way to say, no, he actually was a person with a body, not just a spirit being that looked to be human. But this Gnostic idea has been with us really throughout the history of the church, and we see it in our day and age. In many ways, we see it show up in some of our Christmas carols that are about the incarnation and Jesus coming to be with us. Uh, You know, there's that uh, very, very famous one, um, Away in the Manger, right? 
And it says that the cattle are lowing, the babe awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, that's a problem, I think. If he's a real baby, babies cry, Mm -hmm. especially in the conditions that he was in, in that manger. So it it just shows up all over, it seems, where we want to sanitize Jesus's humanity because we've got this Gnostic idea that, well, if he touches somehow the material world in a real direct way, it, it, it would taint him. That can't be. God can't be actually incarnate in that deep sense that 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 the rest of the world is when we're born into our and 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 and, and live embodied throughout our lives mm-hmm. so uh yeah that that's a start there's a lot more to that and there's a lot of nuance that can be brought to the development of gnosticism and how it plays out so jp I, i'd like you to comment more but that's maybe just a start sure mm-hmm. well and i think what stan has done is given a nice uh introduction to the ontology of gnosticism uh, and the claim that it's really the uh, the soul is what's really important and the body is is evil and it's really and it's not important uh so i think that i think that's a simple way of putting it but but i want to add an epistemological component to gnosticism that i think has really crept into the church almost universally today mm-hmm. and that was the idea that uh the gnostic believed that they they had a special form of private knowledge that was only revealed to them by either the Holy Spirit, if they were uh, second or third century Christian Gnostics, or if they weren't Christian Gnostics, by by some sort of spiritual entity. And that is the real deep knowledge. It's knowledge that does not come from using your mind. But it's this private knowledge that somehow you get if you are have moved up the ranks of spirituality among the Gnostics. Now, th- that was sort of like today when you say people are disputing what you're getting ready to do, and you say, well, God told me to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a conversation stopper. Now, I, I believe God speaks to people. Uh, but I think that has been so abused, and you have to be very, very careful uh, when you make that claim. Uh, and uh, I would urge people that a lot of times I sense God has spoken to me, but I'm only 65, 35 that it was God. I've never been 100 mm. percent. So we have to be careful about that kind of view. And, and, and this is especially important now, Jordan. In interpreting the Bible, because people think that the Holy Spirit uh, is required to teach us the meaning of the biblical text. And I believe that is a gross misunderstanding of the doctrine of illumination. I think what the Holy Spirit does is that he is absolutely essential in illumining how the scriptural text I'm reading applies to me and what I need to do about it. Uh, and sometimes you'll read a verse and there's just it just jumps out and something says, you need to go apologize to your wife or whatever it might be. And that's what I consider to be what the New Testament teaches. But look, look at what happens. If you say that you need the Holy Spirit to understand the meaning of the Bible, 
what that means is that the meaning of the text is private. Mm. It's something that I know because it was illumined to me by the Spirit himself. And the only way you can really know what this means is if the Spirit illuminates you too. So don't Mm. study it. Don't spend time trying to interpret it in its historical context. Uh, Don't uh, use word studies and and other sorts of techniques because they're not going to get you the meaning of the text itself. The Spirit does that. Well, that's an excuse for laziness. It has caused people to come up with all kinds of wild interpretations of the Bible, whose only justification is that the Spirit told me that's what it says. And if anybody tells you that a text means such and such and such because the Spirit told them that's what it meant, if they can't demonstrate that meaning by ordinary interpretive practices on that text, you run away. (laughs) Get out of town, man, because that is very dangerous. And and now we've got an evangelical community that literally asks the question, what does this text mean to me? Before they ask the question, what does this text mean? And I think that is making the Bible and what it teaches uh, present to a secular culture that are saying, well, if that's what the Bible teaches, I don't want to have any part of Christianity, like take sex, for example. And, but but that's not what the, usually that is what the Bible teaches at all. The the Bible is uh, celebrates uh, the joy and pleasure in in sexual activity within the confines the protective confines of monogamous marriage. But the point is just that the view has been misunderstood uh, because Christians don't do the hard work of of interpreting the word before they go public and start telling their neighbors, well, this is what we believe as Christians. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. If I could add another sentence, I told my kids when I raised them, I, I said to them, listen, when they were like old enough to understand, uh, you are a part of a Christian subculture, a culture. And mom and I are going to raise you according to what we think the Bible teaches about a bunch of things but we're not going to raise you according to the values of our evangelical subculture. Some of them may be good. Some of them may not be. But but we don't look to our subculture and, and try to gain their approval by the way we raise kids. We raise you according to what Jesus and the, the, the Proverbs and other things in Scripture teach us. And your responsibility is to live according to that not according to what makes your friends happy or mm-hmm. or the other kids' parents happy. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, we use common sense reason for, with that, of course, mm-hmm. but you, you get the point I'm making here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of kids, quite frankly, abandon Christianity and get really hurt because they don't fit in. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to fit into a, to a cultural context in the church that they very much would like to know Jesus, but but they don't fit into that context. They're not popular or what have you. And and so they kind of just uh, shrink away and give up and they get hurt by that kind of thing. Yeah. And they end up rejecting a Christianity that wasn't Christianity in the first place. There you go. Absolutely. I've watched countless friends 
uh, walk away from that. And I always want to ask, and sometimes I do if we're close enough, ask, you know, what, what is it that you're rejecting? And so often it's the trappings of a cultural Christianity exactly. that, you know, well, I asked Jesus into my heart and I heard that that meant I would go to heaven and not hell. And that was the extent of the depth of my knowledge. And it was all about escaping my pain. Now the kind of all fly away Christianity right. and when Gnosticism or like ideas creep into Christianity, that's what happens is we end up with a really shallow kind of hoity-toity Christianity that really, it's just got nothing to it other than feelings. Well, it's pretty thin. It's pretty thin. There is one exception to this. Mm -hmm. I honestly, at this point, don't see how a Raiders fan could become a, could be a Christian. (laughs) Uh, I just, I'm working on that. But uh, as a Chiefs fan, I just don't get it. Yeah, you're preaching so, the yeah. choir here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> there might be some of you might disagree listening yeah, to the podcast. Oh, okay. but, yeah. but they're wrong, we know, but they, they might yeah, disagree. So right. <laughs> well, now we know. You know, this so well illustrates how ideas have far-reaching consequences beyond what we ever can see. Mm-hmm. Just uh, this one little idea, this one little deviation uh, that's under the banner Gnosticism, though, of course, it can uh, have a lot of different permutations, uh, ha- has so many implications. We talked about mm-hmm. a, a, a few of them, but they're everywhere we look. You know, JP mentioned uh, the the role of sex. Well, all good physical gifts like that or food or drink, what mm-hmm. have you, uh, in the right contexts, and there are parameters, of course, but in the right contexts are are part of that goodness of being embodied absolutely it's part of god's grace to us that he gives us these things to enjoy in our bodies as ways to celebrate him to celebrate our lives to celebrate our incarnated being and again jesus coming in the flesh it's just another indication that in case you've forgotten it's good to be incarnate it's good to be in the Mm -hmm. body so much so that i'm going to take on a body as well and live mm-hmm. as you live. It's not, as Plato said, the body is not the prison house of the soul. Mm-hmm. In fact, it enables the soul to flourish, is the point. Mm-hmm. We will return to the show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you are like most of our listeners, you are concerned about the ideas being promoted in our universities today. We too often hear about what is false and even harmful being promoted as true. Christian professors are called to stand up for what is true, good, and just, and teach their students to do the same. Help equip Christian professors to do so at www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, The College Faith Podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students, and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. It really is easy to see where we go astray on this, and of course, as with every good and perfect gift, as James talks about, it can go sideways. Of 
course it can go sideways. For instance, alcohol, drinking, you know, wine, the the toast of celebration with friends is an absolutely God-given gift. Yes, celebration. Yes. You know, you contrast that to a drink that pacifies you or tries to alleviate some sort of emotional suffering. Like that's a different use of the same gift. It's not that the gift itself is bad. It's the use has gone sideways. It's abuse. Yeah, abuse. There's use and abuse of any gift. Mm-hmm. And I can see how it would be easier to throw the baby out with the bathwater on this one and to suggest that, well, you know, maybe all the gifts are bad and maybe we're just trying to make something good that never was. But it's pretty clear from scripture we read over and over it was good. Yes. What and by way of a of an interesting implication here. Uh, and this is so ironic. But we all know that we're living in a culture that is more and more materialistic. Uh and you know, people don't even think twice about talking of a smart person. Boy, that guy's got brains. You know, I'd rather than say he's got a mind, you know, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. But in the midst of that, we still have kind of a form in our secular culture of Gnosticism. And what I mean by that is that the free sex movement has reduced sex from a a, a deeply person-related activity, a personal exchange involving our bodies to a mere contact of bodies. And the the idea is that you can practice promiscuity as often as you want because it's not going to affect you. It's just a bodily activity uh, like eating. I mean, you know, so it's not going to, it isn't going to bother you. It's just a bodily thing. And this is a deep confusion about the body and what it is and how it relates to, to the person and how it's used to express our, our hearts and our values and all the rest of it. So it's odd to me that in a culture that claims to be materialistic, there's, there's less and less concern about what we do with and what is done to our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And this theme actually runs through the history of the church as well, right? In the early uh, centuries of the Christian faith, there were the Gnostics who said, look, the body is inconsequential. It's irrelevant. So you do whatever you want in your body, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, whatever you want to do, because really the action is in the soul. But then there were others who went the ascetic route where they said the body is evil and therefore to be punished. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to sit on a pole for 40 years or do something else to punish my body because that's what will purify my soul, which is contaminated by its contact with this body. And both those were, of course, wrong directions that the Gnostics went. But I, I think you continue to see those in different ways bubble to the surface in different cultural eras. And you've named one in our mm -hmm. current era, even though in your case, it is beyond the Christian community and more broadly understood. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Great point. Great point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is often that I hear, well, I'm not a Christian, but I am spiritual. You hear that coming out of any tradition. Well, I'm not a Buddhist, but I'm, I'm kind of spiritual. It's interesting that 
what people often mean by that is that I appreciate spiritual things or I, I appreciate experiences that disintegrate me from my body. Well, a classic example of a student of my, a graduate student of mine, Ray Darabont, really wandered away from her early childhood Christianity for a long time. She was in the Hollywood industry and she was uh, deep into yoga for 10 years and she became a Christian and she has done a tremendous amount of research. In fact, she spoke on a, on a talk radio show about this and she's written papers for me on it about the idea that, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in the spiritual or religious implications of yoga. I just want exercise and I want to stretch my body. That is extraordinarily naive because you can't extricate the two. That Hindu theology and metaphysics are deeply interwoven into the practices of yoga themselves. And if you go to a yoga clinic, the music and the incense and the other things associated with those practices are also Hindu in origin. And the more you get into yoga, the more Hindu becomes evident. They've actually developed a strategy in the West, uh, and she documents this about the history of yoga in this country, of trying to do marketing <laughs> so that they could use words that Christians like, like become holy or uh, grow in your love for God, but those words mean something radically different in the hands of, of those who teach yoga than the ordinary Christian means by them. So it's kind of a way of, of a bait and switch. That's a perfect example of where Christians are separating what their body from the other spiritual, ideological relationships that go with those practices. So you have to be careful about that. Mm -hmm. Maybe as Dallas Willard put it, uh, you would think that following Jesus would require one to be thoughtful now, wouldn't you? And he didn't, <laughs> and, by, and by thoughtful, he didn't mean kind. He meant you'd have to think about life. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I kind of think yeah. so. Mm-hmm. Let me take this a little bit of a different direction, or at least add another dimension to the implications of Gnosticism. And this comes from the world I work in, and I know, JP, you've thought a lot about this as well. In the educational realm, the fact of the incarnation, the fact that God values all of creation and not just the spiritual things, uh, affirms so much more of what we study than just theology. Right? Now, theology is important to study. It tells us truths about God. But the incarnation reminds us, no, it's also good to study the arts and the sciences, those things that deal with and engage directly the material world. Because again, this material world is not bad or to be avoided or minimalized, but to be celebrated and embraced and researched and understood and so the the whole scientific enterprise, as we know it today, came out of this non or anti-Gnostic idea that the physical world is so important and valuable and loved by God that we want to know it and we should study it and we should understand it. Mm -hmm. And so it really redeems the full panoply of academic disciplines as well, um, which I've shared with a number of professors who actually are believers and would sit down over a cup of coffee with me and say something like, 
yeah, I just study astrophysics. Uh, boy, I really wish I could do something valuable for God's kingdom, like like my pastor does. But but uh, yeah, I'm not really trained in theology, so you know, I can I can do this, and uh, you know, and I I can make some money and give it to the church and you know missions, and that's good. And it breaks my heart, first of all. But it's always a thrill to explain that God values and loves what you do because you are seeking to think his thoughts after him and understand his creation, which he loves and made for your good pleasure. And uh, from that becomes a, a, a renewed sense that, boy, this is important stuff to study and this is valuable. And God's called me to this. Uh, so I, it's not only in the professions where one's nine to five work is valued because of uh, God's love for the material realm and his reminder of that in the incarnation, but it's in the academic world and the various yes. disciplines that, that people are called to understand that deal directly with this realm. And, and it is good. As God said in Genesis one, it is good mm-hmm. what he created. And, and the more we know it, the more we know uh, about that goodness. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That valuing of work is just such a dignifying idea. Yeah. To talk about humanity in that way and our experiences in that way. If you're listening to this right after it comes out, it'll be right in the middle of the Advent season. If you're thinking through the process of becoming a baby, I'm a mother, you are both fathers. Babies need a lot. Yes. (laughs) And it's incredibly harrowing work to care for a child. When scripture talks about the least of these, talks about orphans and widows. And in our culture, children are not considered human persons. They're, you know, kind of persons in progress. And maybe someday they'll be worth our time. It's heartbreaking to see that. And I think it would break the heart of Christ who welcomed little children. To be a human person is to at one point be a child. Absolutely. And this is a season where we celebrate that Christ did that. It really slips past me sometimes. And I'm glad that we have this anchor in the liturgical season to remind us how marvelous it is. Well, this is uh, a really important insight because what this tells me is that Christmas should be a time when, in addition to what I reflect upon and and draw my worship into to Jesus and and God for the Father for the Incarnation. This is a time for me to rededicate my commitment to the value of children, both in the womb and subsequent to the womb. So what that would mean if I had younger children is that I would be very, very concerned to get involved in what what they're being taught in the public schools. And uh, I would be very, very careful, in fact, about exposing these little little beings to that kind of indoctrination. And this reminds me, as you pointed out, it, it valued life as a, an infant and, and, and young child and baby. Then, then I need to be reminded that those issues that are harming children, including abortion, are, are things that should matter a great deal to me. And they're they're a part of what Christians stand for, precisely as reinforced by uh, the the nature of the incarnation, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, C.S. Lewis is often quoted as saying, children are not a distraction from more important work. They are the most important work. Wow, that's good stuff. That's good. And oh, is it easy to see them as a distraction. Mm -hmm. Oh, it is. You know, while we're talking uh, more specifically now about Christ's incarnation and the the Advent season, uh, it is important, I think, for us to, to stop and reflect on an important theological theme in that for us to really have a Savior in Christ, he had to be human. Now, clearly, the Savior had to be God because no human could pay for another person's sin. We've all got our own to 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 pay for in 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 uh in the presence of a holy god but the savior had to equally be fully human because he had to be an equal substitute so if in fact the gnostics are right and jesus wasn't really a human he also wasn't really a savior but that's what we celebrate in the advent season that god did become incarnate became one of us took on both human body and, and and fundamentally human nature, and as one of us, identified in every way without sin and therefore was an equal substitute. Thank you, Stan, for that reminder. And I might turn, turn the topic just to a slightly different issue. I, I am anything but a Scrooge, and uh, I, I love uh, the nativity scenes and Christmas decorations and Christmas trees. I don't care where they came from. Uh, I don't want to commit to genetic fallacy, uh, but 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 I love all of that and Christmas carols and and little angel figurines. It's just uplifting. I'm not saying anything about bad about that, but but there is a a danger, and here's here's the danger. All of that tends to make the incarnation feel like a fairy tale story. Because it's these little angels are little cutesy things, and when you look at them, you think there's no way in 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 the world that there are beings like that, and the whole thing just looks like I don't know uh, something that's for a Macy's sale, mm-hmm. some sort of yeah, Botticellian cherubs. Yeah. We, yeah. So so what it does, I think, because we subliminally treat the incarnation as a fairy tale and not as something factual that really happened in history. And so let's enjoy all of the uh, decorations and the rest of it, please. But let's not forget that what really happened isn't quite like the stands out in front of the stores and that we're dealing with something here that really happened in history. Okay, good mm-hmm. word, good word. I get in trouble every year over this, by the way, <laughs> because we set up in our house the nativity scene, and then yeah. I take the three wise men, and I put them like on the other end of the house as far away as I can go, <laughs> because when Jesus was in the manger, they were still in Iraq, just heading out, modern-day Iraq, heading out, so they wouldn't right. be anywhere near. By the time they get right. to him, he's two years old, but nobody, nobody likes that. They want those... Wiseman right there next to him in the manger and uh, in the way it went down. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a retelling of history. I want to get it. Right. Uh, <laughs> I lost, I lost that battle. I lost that battle. <laughs> and I, you know, you wanted, I was going to ask you how I won it. Cause I can't win that one either. <laughs> no, I, I saw, I just, I picked my battles very carefully. <laughs> Wise man. Wise yeah. man. <laughs> Gentlemen, I think I must tell you. 
my favorite Christmas joke. Are you ready? Oh, I don't know. That yeah, you're ready probably this. not. Mm, probably go, not. Go for it. All right. What did the third wise man say to Mary? I don't know. You got me. But wait, there's Mer. <laughs> oh, that's so bad. That's almost a dad joke. I guess it's a mom joke for you. Right? It is a mom <laughs> joke for me. Yep. <laughs> Uh, you know, in some ways, I do appreciate that we don't decorate with actual depictions of angels because that might be quite terrifying, really. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, the the cute ones every once in a while, I'll, I'll let it slide. Yeah. If you want to know about angels, you want to read Judith McNutt's two books on angels. Uh, I don't remember the title, Angels Explained or something. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll get a real picture of what angels really are. And uh, so that's just for those interested in that subject. Stan, mm -hmm. you go ahead. You were going to say something. No, that's good. Well, I was going to uh, tie in to what we're talking about in terms of the nativity to the um, kind of the broader idea, again, of the incarnation, again, validating this physical world and our place in it. And uh, another implication that I want to make sure gets on the table in this discussion is it reminds us, again, that God is interested in not just the spiritual realm, but the physical realm. And we have a stewardship given to us by him to care for the creation. And so it gives us a theological grounding to be concerned with the world around us, not just the people, but the physical world around us and to care for it and to redeem it in ways that really are deeply embedded in the Christian worldview. And I, I am bothered when sometimes Christians say, well, hey, it, it's all going to burn. Only things that matter are God, his word, and people's souls. So everything mm -hmm. else I can really care less about. And that's just not a biblical idea. And the incarnation reminds us of that. That no, mm -hmm. all of God's creation is valuable. He looked at it all and said, this is good. And then he gave us its care uh, as our charge. Another implication of the incarnation. Mm -hmm. But it's a very important one because I really don't have any idea why an unbeliever has any justification uh, in caring for creation. I mean, you know, you, you I guess you could use a utilitarian argument and say, well, if we don't care for the creation, future generations are going to be in trouble. But but future generations don't exist. Uh, so you're asking me, an existing being, to modify my life for things that aren't even in, in don't exist yet. And moreover, why should I den deny myself the things that I want for other people? Mm -hmm. I, 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 where did that come from? Mm -hmm. Kind of on the other side of that coin is the environmental idea that's, oh, if we could just get rid of these awful humans. They're destroying this beautiful planet. When they talk about it, you, you get a sense that it's a sort of genocidal idea that, you know, oh, we got to control this wild population. They're ruining everything. Somewhere in the middle is the idea that it is good and it was created for us to enjoy and care for. Right. Absolutely. That's a good, that's a really good point. I wonder too, and, and maybe you could speak more to this, in this idea of Gnosticism, it's as if there's this connection between a, a holiness or pietistic tradition that says, I know myself, I have been pierced by the depth of my own sin, and I simply can't imagine that God himself would be anything like what I am. 
So maybe God wasn't ever like what I am. Right. And and that then can fuel a Gnostic sort of life by withdrawing from this uh, evil world, uh, including the, uh, the natural world, and focus on the cultivation of my soul. Now, I want to be clear that there is a role for, in my view, certain people called to live a life devoted to prayer and uh, spiritual cultivation uh, involving the soul, although they exercise the body as well. But even if we grant that, it doesn't follow that their calling is better than others, which is something Stan has been saying. Mm -hmm. And I think those who would want to say that that is really a life we all should have tried to live, because, I mean, this world is so messed up that the best thing to do is to get out of it is sort of a form of Gnostic escapism. Uh, and it fails to realize, as as Dallas Willard used to put it, that Jesus thought the universe, uh, the physical world we live in, it was an absolutely wonderful place. Now, he wasn't naive about its fallenness. And so I'll grant you it's a mixed bag. But look. The goodness of the beauty of the world so outtrumps the fallenness and the bad things that happen, let's say, in the animal kingdom, that the world, we could still say with a clear conscience, the world is not what it was intended to be, but it's still got an awful lot of goodness in it. And I should I should revel in that rather than withdrawing from it all the while looking for opportunities to be a steward and protecting myself from human influence of evil and, and so on. Yeah, that's really good. Hey, we're coming up on the uh, top of the hour, and there's one more thing I want to press into. So I'm going to jump into this quickly. Great, and it, it is a an area where I had for a long time implicitly embraced a Gnostic idea. And as I've come to realize that was the case and 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 move away from those ideas it's really helped my spiritual life and that has to do with my thinking about and let's just say my theology of church architecture church services even being presently at church so let me just try to unpack this briefly a, a gnostic idea which again says the spiritual realm is where the action is and uh, the physical realm is irrelevant at best, harmful at worst to my spiritual growth, would from that follow that, you know, I don't even need to go to church to be with other people, to be next to other bodies. I can be with them virtually online. And uh, and that's at least good enough, maybe better than having to physically be there. And we talked about this in an early episode on why I actually go back to church after COVID. But, but more so even is... I always had a hard time, and we've moved around a lot, so we've gone to a lot of different churches. I, I've always had a hard time really experiencing deep worship in churches that were really gymnasiums, that you know we could move the chairs out, and there was the markings on the floor, and the, the hoops came down, and it was just a multi-purpose room. And I, I didn't realize this till I went to a church that was actually designed thoughtfully to remind you physically and by the actual space of God's grandeur and, and love and other things that are done architecturally that literally led to my spirit soaring. And I just was reflecting on that and thinking, well, what, what is it that was different about this experience? 
and it had to do with the physical space I was in uh, and other things as well, by the way. But that, I think, was a, a, an important part of it. And I realized, you know, I've, I've kind of been a Gnostic myself here because I've thought, yeah, worship is really just a spiritual experience. But no, it's actually a, a full-bodied experience. My soul and my body are part of the worship experience. And so I, I look for that now. What does is, what is this architecture say? What is the way that we are physically present in this space saying about God, my relationship to God, our relationship to one another as the community. Uh, and, and I think it's important to think about those things. I couldn't agree more. In fact, this is one of the reasons why I tell people on your bucket list before you die, you just have to go to Europe. And the main reason is to see those cathedrals. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's a lot more that's beautiful, but I'm telling you as a Christian, I've had the privilege of going to Europe a, a small handful of times, and what stays with me are images of being inside those cathedrals and the breathtaking transcendence of God and the grandeur of God that they communicate. Yeah. It's, I don't know, Stan, if you'd agree with this, but it's almost impossible to find an alternative way of communicating that in the same way. There's something unique about the way architecture can communicate that. That doesn't replace other ways, but it supplements it, and it's got its own value in and of itself. Yeah, but I want to be clear that I'm not advocating that churches all should have the grandeur of some of those cathedrals. I remember a seminary professor telling us about a time when he was given charge of the undergraduate student chapel, and the chapel was was in a gymnasium. That's where they had chapel service. And uh, he ended up saying, uh, let's make a, a, a more narrow entryway and have candles in that. And let's actually cloak the area we'll have chapel in so that it's a little more intimate and you're not distracted by all these other things you're seeing. And he said it was an entirely different experience for the students. So, again, it wasn't a, a fabulous architecture per se, but it was a space created that let students engage God's presence in a different way. So yeah, it might be architectural, uh, but it, in, in some way or another, it reminds a person of God, his grandeur and our, both our, our, our fallen yet redeemed state before him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's yeah. a good qualifier. Mm-hmm. And something about it just invites us to orient our souls in a proper way. Mm-hmm. It invites us to interact with God in a way that puts puts things in order. Mm-hmm. And there really is something truly beautiful about that. Mm-hmm. You bet. Another thing that's really important to remember, too, is that these bodies we've been given are for this life, but also for the life to come. We will have an embodied experience of the life of the world to come. And that is something really distinct about Christianity. And it makes sense as we think about the incarnation, that that would be a a key part of what we are holding on to as, as Christians who value the life that we have embodied. Oh, it's such a great point. And again, it's another place that this Gnosticism is just deep in our Christian a general understanding, this idea that we die and we go eternally to live 
with the angels on the clouds, strumming harps, disembodied, which is not anywhere in scripture. There is a disembodied period. We've talked about this a few podcasts ago, mm-hmm. or yes, there will be a period where our bodies are in the grave and we are in the presence of God in that intermediate state. But then there is this final resurrection when we get our bodies back and we live eternally in our bodies in the new earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're told in Revelation about God creating the new heavens and the new earth and redeeming all things. And so, again, the incarnation is, you know, a reminder of God creating everything in the beginning and saying it is good and looking forward to that all things will be redeemed and embodied in healthy, holistic, flourishing ways as he lived. Mm -hmm. And if you want to read a really great book on this, we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I want to see specifically Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright is an excellent book. Well, and I'll tag in another book that touches on this very well in just one chapter, I believe, but it's a great chapter, is Andy Crouch's book, Culture Making, talking about the call that we receive, again, in, in the creation story to cultivate or care for God's creation, to make culture, and that that will even into eternity future in our resurrected bodies be what we do. We make culture as we're called to do right now. Yeah, great book. Well, listeners, this has been just a lovely conversation. I hope you are having a wonderful Advent season and that you get to rejoice in the coming of Christ this Christmas and in the year to come. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Good to be with you both. You guys too. You you all take care. God bless both of you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith, seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.